select the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Tonight I'm going to continue to talk about the five hindrances. Last night I talk about I talked about the first three hindrances, namely sensual desire, ill will, and sloth and torpor. So tonight I'm going to deal with the remaining two, namely restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. But before that, let me say a few things. This morning, early morning, uh, when I came out of the meditation hall just before breakfast, I noticed sunny, clear weather and the colors of the leaves, they were so bright, so shining. And so seeing that, I just noticed how my mind immediately latched onto this nice visual input. That's sensual desire, desire for the gratification of the senses. <coughs> Maybe, what about you? You are probably so mindful and eyes gazing down that you didn't notice it at all. This afternoon I came across a quote from Shanti Deva, who uses a nice uh, example to illustrate this desire for the gratification of the senses. So Shanti Deva likens us to a fish that sport, sports that spots a little worm on a hook. Whether or not we are conscious of the hook, we still we still want to like to bite into that nice little juicy worm. The consequence for us and the poor little fish is the same. Short-term gratification and a very unpleasant end. So these hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt can become a hindrance in our meditation practice when they are not dealt with properly. When these hindrances are not dealt with properly, then they are like a thick shadow in the mind. So when the mind is clouded, when there is a 
thick shadow hanging over the mind, then the clarity of the mind is obviously obscured. And so a clear seeing of things is impossible. At the end of my talk last night, I mentioned this analogy for these five hindrances, comparing them to the water of a pond. So a clear mind is like a pond with clear water so that one can see to the ground of this pond. But a mind overcome with the hindrances, then depending on the hindrance, becomes like the pond with um, dyed water. That's for sensual desire. Water mixed with colorful dyes. For ill will or anger, it's like boiling water when the water of the pond is boiling. When sloth and torpor is present, then it's like the water of the pond covered with moss or covered with algae. And the mind overcome with restlessness and remorse, then it's like the water of the pond whipped by the wind, having uh, ripples, little waves. And finally, the mind uh, overcome with skeptical doubt, that is like the water of the pond being very dirty or murky. <coughs> so now, uh, let's deal with these last two hindrances. So the fourth hindrance is restlessness and remorse. <coughs> and the Pali terms for that is Uttacha Kukucha. So this is a twin hindrance. Restlessness and remorse are two different things or mental states, but they have more or less the same effects on the mind. So a restless mind is a mind that is not at rest. It's going out all the time, a busy mind. Or sometimes this restless mind is also referred to as the monkey mind. Just as a monkey jumps from one branch to another, just as it jumps from one tree to another, so in the same manner, a monkey mind jumps from one object to another. Monkey mind jumping here and there because it is never satisfied with what it already has. At times, it can get really, really bad because the mind doesn't want to stay with any object whatsoever. And at that time, it is like trying a little puppy to sit down in a certain place. So let's uh, imagine we have a little uh, naughty puppy and we want to train it to sit down. So then 
uh, we take it, sit it down on the uh, ground, on the floor, and say, sit. But half a second later, the puppy is off. <laughs> then we catch it, take it again, sit. Again, half a second later, puppy is running off. And so, catching it again, sitting it down, tell it, sit. Maybe this time, one second before the puppy runs off. And so, it's apparent. We need to be very patient with this little puppy. We need to have a lot of perseverance to make it sit on that uh, on a spot and not run away again. But with enough patience and perseverance, the puppy will slowly understand and sit there. So we have to do the same with our mind, especially with our restless mind. Whenever the mind wanders off, runs away, we should try to catch it. And this means uh, to note it, to note this uh, restless mind, to want to observe this wandering thought. And in the context of Vipassana meditation, we should observe it until it disappears. And then if we notice that already another thought uh, has arisen, we also try to catch it as soon as we can and then to note it. When that has disappeared and if soon, a- if soon after yet another thought comes up again, notice it, observe it, note it until it disappears. So to deal with a restless mind means to note whenever a thought arises. Not to slip them not to let them slip by unnoticed, because with that they uh, can stay powerful. But if we acknowledge and note each uh, thought that has arisen, then gradually, over time, and when mindfulness becomes better and concentration deeper, then the mind will calm down. At times, as I said, the mind seems to be so unruly, so wild and chaotic. And as best as we can, we try to catch it, each thought, note it, next one, observe it, note it. And if we do that for a certain period of time, we might feel a bit frustrated because there doesn't seem to be any improvement. But still, we need to be patient. We need to persevere and not give up. You know, don't have any expectations because that is really a very dangerous thing to have. But if there are many thoughts arising, then this is what is happening in your practice. And so... Be mindful of that. Observe each thought. And so, if you observe thoughts 
hundreds or thousands even in a sitting, you will come to see that each of these thoughts arises and then disappears again. And so, observing many thoughts, you come to see thoughts arise and disappear. They come up and then dissolve again. And so, you will come to see the impermanent nature of these thoughts. See them as anicca, as impermanent. They do not last and there is no permanent solid core in any of these thoughts. Look that carefully. We see they are quite insubstantial, quite fleeting actually. And so even with observing many thoughts, uh, you can gain uh, deep insights, namely in the nature of impermanence. And also, uh, of course, uh, the other general characteristics. So even a very restless mind, when observed mindfully, can uh, be a source of deep understanding. So just be mindful, just be alert. A classical image for restlessness is this. If you throw a stone into a heap of cold ashes, then the ashes will be dispersed in all different directions. They will get scattered. They will be uh, all over the place. And so likewise, as a restless mind is scattered all over the place. Or going back to the analogy used at the beginning of this talk, a restless mind is like water whipped by the wind. When the water is whipped by the wind, then the surface of the water is obviously not still and calm. So there is disquietude. And so also, likewise, a restless mind is not quiet and still. There is disquietude in the mind. Then the other part of this hindrance is remorse. That's kukucha, a nice Pali word. And so this is the mental state that feels worry or unhappy about an event in the past. And it is actually twofold. So the first kind of remorse is the worry or unhappiness about the deed in the past that should not have been done. And now one is regretting that one did that action. Then the second kind of remorse is the worry or unhappiness that results from not having done a deed that should have been done. So I will illustrate these two kinds of remorse with two examples. 
many, many years ago, before I became a nun, on my second visit to Australia, I had a bag with Sampa with me that I brought from Ladakh. I had been traveling in Ladakh, the northern part of India, the northern the Indian Himalayas, and in that part people eat Sampa, like the Tibetan people. Sampa is roasted barley flour, and so the Tibetan people, the Ladakhi people, they mix this barley flour with butter tea. Butter tea obviously has butter in it and it's uh, salty. And so they mix it together, knead it and make kind of a dough and then they eat it. And I just loved it very much. <laughs> so I had this big plastic bag full of zampa in my backpack. Well, from my very first visit to Australia, I knew that one actually is not supposed to bring any food into Australia. But I didn't uh, bother. And so on the immigration card, one has to declare if one has any food or not. And um, so I just crossed no, no food. And I was confident enough that I would pass customs unnoticed. And so then when I was queuing up at uh, customs, long queue, many people on the plane, and so then one man from customs walked along the queue and he picked me. <laughs> said, please come over to a desk over there. And uh, he was a very nice and friendly man, and in a typical Australian manner, he said, good day, how are you, and so on. And so I said, yeah, I'm fine. And um, so then he said, well, um, show me your card. And he had a look at it and said, did you understand everything? And what you have signed is correct. And then it was like, <gasps> it's not correct, I know, but no, I can now, I cannot tell them, I cannot tell him that I have lied, you know, I have actually some food. Um, but still, I couldn't admit that I had lied. So I said, yes, I understood everything and it's true. And then he said, okay, so let's see your, your things, your bags. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> and, you know, my, my remorse, my worry was, maybe I should tell him that I have some food, that I have some sampa. Maybe now it's the moment to tell him. But again, this other voice said, no, no, no. You cannot admit you have lied, you know. And so, first he pointed to my day pack and said, please open it and uh, take out the things. And he took out the things. And I thought, okay, you can have a look at my day pack. My jumper is in the other one. <laughs> and so after having taken out everything, he said, oh, thank you. Now we'll have a look at your big bag. And again I thought, no, this cannot be true. So embarrassing. 
maybe I should tell him uh, that it is not correct. Maybe now is really the last chance that I uh, could tell him. But again, no, 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 don't tell him. Maybe still he won't see it. And so then, uh, opening my big backpack, and still he was a friendly uh, fellow and talking and where I had been and he also said he liked traveling and he had also been to India and there. So I tried to be casual and not show my worries, but inside here <sighs> there was a storm going on. And so taking out one thing after the other from my big backpack and then he came to the middle where I had this plastic bag with Sampa. And so he grabbed it, took it out, kind of touched it, pressed it. <laughs> and in that moment, I just wanted to sink into the ground and disappear. <laughs> and after pressing it, touching it, turning it over, he said something to me in too much Australian slang. I didn't understand what he said, but I just said, ah. And with that, he put it aside <laughs> and went on to take on other things. And after emptying the whole backpack, he said, okay, you're done, good. He even helped me to pack my things back into the backpack. He said, a nice, have a nice stay in Australia, bye. <laughs> but <laughs> that was a relief. But it was a really uh, awful lesson that I had uh, learned there what I thought just to be a little act of dishonesty turned out to be such a painful and terrible experience. So the other kind of remorse is a deed that has been left undone that one has not done, although one uh, knows one should have done something. Everybody knows if one wants to post a letter in India or Nepal, um, you must wait in front of the mm -hmm. desk and see that the people really put the stamp on your stamps because otherwise uh, your letters uh, will never arrive. So I knew that very well. But somehow one day when I went into the GPO in Kathmandu, handing over a bunch of letters, the man said that it was, I had already put the stamps on it, and of telling him, please stamp it. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, kind of a very friendly, yes, yes, I will do it, reassuring, and put it to the side. And for whatever reasons, I just believed him, thinking that this friendly fellow man would do his job properly. And so I walked away. And that was fine, so at that time, there was no remorse. It was only later on when I came to learn 
that none of my family and none of my friends had received that letter, that the remorse came up. And moreover, there were, there were all handwritten letters on this very nice handmade Nepali paper. Each letter had about uh, four or five pages and there were about 15 letters altogether. I was writing them when I was staying in Nagakot, which is just a bit outside of Kathmandu on a little uh, hill range from where one has this fantastic view on the Himalayas and um, so to get away from the busy, filthy, noisy Kathmandu I spent some relaxing days up there writing all these letters. So when later on I came to realize that none of my family and friends had got this letter, then the remorse came up. Thoughts like, oh, what a pity. took me three days to write all these letters. And they were such lovely letters, handwritten on this handmade paper. Um, I should have insisted at the post office that the man stamps these letters. Why haven't I done that? I should have known. Why was I so careless? And so on. And, you know, it was not only one time that this remorse came up, but actually uh, it occurred again and again (coughs) and again. So, these two kinds of remorse, remorse about something that should have been done and the remorse about something that should not have been done These two kinds of remorse, they lead to a restless mind. So then the mind is no longer quiet and calm, but it leads to a restless and scattered mind. Now let's go to the last of these five hindrances. And this is skeptical doubt. The Pali word for it is vichikicca. So if doubt arises, we may question ourselves whether it was the right decision to come here or not. Or we doubt that we have the necessary qualities to do this practice. Or we may have even doubts about the Buddha's teaching Uh, as being a way of overcoming uh, our suffering or of becoming free from the defilements. Doubts can be very difficult to deal with because they may not have the appearance of doubts at the first sight. So therefore, it's especially important that we detect doubts as simply to be doubts. And to recognize that doubts are just some thoughts, mental states that can arise, but that 
also can disappear again. So, in the course of our meditation practice, there can be doubts like, what am I doing here? Or, why have I come here? Or thinking, that's too much. If I have to sit so many times throughout the day, I'm surely going to uh, damage my knees. Or a doubt like, I doubt that this is the right way. I actually feel worse than I ever felt. Or a doubt like, I have already done so many meditation retreats and still the mind is not yet crossing over to the other shore. Or, never did I have so many painful sensations. I must be doing the wrong thing. Or doubt like, before coming to the retreat, my mind felt actually more quiet and more peaceful. Now, it's just this mess of a mind going all over the place. These kinds of doubts are endless. And especially when meditators have a hard time, when things are not going smoothly, then the little me, the little poor I, manifests very strongly in the form of doubts. And so with these doubts, then the mind tries to justify our views and our opinions. And of course, this little poor me knows better. If we doubt everything before we even try it out, then it will be very difficult to advance to new territory. Advance to new territory on this spiritual path. Our doubts happen within a frame of mind that is bound by concepts or by strongly held opinions and views. And uh, our minds are also uh, bound by our limited personal experience. So if we take our limited mind, our limited personal experience as the basis for our standing or the basis for making decisions, then we will always turn around in the cycle of our uh, limited understanding and mental progress will be very, very difficult. So the best answer to skeptical doubts is an open mind and a willingness to try it out for ourselves. So, if doubts come up in our meditation practice, then we have to immediately recognize recognize them as doubts and so immediately start to be aware of them, 
to observe them, to note them. Simply note them as doubt, doubt, doubt. And especially with doubt, it's important that we do not pay attention to the story or the content of this doubt. Because once we get identified with that, we will surely be pulled into it. So one should try to simply stay with the fact that a doubt has arisen, that the mind is doubting. Some meditators uh, have also doubts regard to the method of meditation. And especially uh, to this technique of meditation, uh, especially with um, the slowing down of daily activities. And the fact that being aware of these daily activities also amounts to meditation. In their limited understanding, they hold the view that meditation has to take place in the sitting posture. Maybe walking uh, is okay. But they doubt very much that there could be any benefit from noting these movements and actions like getting up, opening a door, uh, brushing your teeth, and so on. So their doubt is based on the little and narrow field of experience they had so far without acknowledging that there might be other possibilities or without having a more open mind. So doubt is something very, very common to meditators. And even Mahasi Sayadaw had his doubts when he first, when, when he was first confronted with this approach of meditation. So, in his own words, Mahasi Sayadaw said, I myself was a skeptic at one time. I did not then like the Satipatthana method, as it makes no mention of Nama, Rupa, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and so forth. Um, a little comment to this. In Burma, there are many other methods of practicing Vipassana meditation. And, for example, one method, uh, they go and just note Anicca, 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 impermanence, 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 or Nama, Nama, mental phenomena, and so on. So now again, Mahasi Sayadaw. But the Sayadaw who taught the method was a learned monk. And so I decided to give it a try. At first I made little progress because I still had a lingering doubt about the method which, in my view, had nothing to do with ultimate reality. It was only later on when I had followed the method seriously that its significance dawned on me. 
I realized then that it is the best method of meditation since it calls for attentiveness to everything that is to be known, leaving no room for absent-mindedness. So this was well, this was Mahasiddhas stance. And I must confess, I also had my doubts about this uh, technique of slowing down when I first encountered uh, this kind of vipassana meditation. Because I had done many other Buddhist meditation retreats in other Buddhist traditions. And because in none of these retreats we were instructed to slow down movements and to observe them. So I just thought this was a very particular thing taught by this uh, Sayado. So I had these big doubts about this slowing down being uh, beneficial or having any uh, positive effects. And so in that first retreat I simply didn't heed the advice of the Sayadaw to slow down. I kept doing my daily activities in my usual speed and seeing other yogis slowing down I just gave them a pitiful smile. (laughs) About on the third or the fourth day of that retreat and this was a retreat led by Jamie Sayadaw by the Ujanaka, and he was actually here in Australia. So then, on the fourth, third or fourth day of that retreat, in the interview, Jamie Saido made a very personal remark. And after that, I decided to give it a try. And I just put that out away, and having some uh, confidence or willingness uh, to try it out, I started to slow down and becoming uh, aware of all my different actions and movements. And once I had put aside my doubt and just uh, followed the instruction, after a day I was amazed by the effects this slowing down had. To me it was just mind-blowing. I could not have imagined how powerful and uh, effective this method was. Such a simple method yielded such unexpected and powerful results. And my meditation before slowing down and after slowing down uh, was like day and night big, big uh, difference. And so, of course, with this personal direct experience, all of my doubts had disappeared. And not being overcome by doubts anymore, my mind became much clearer and more readily settled on the object. If we leave doubts unnoticed, 
then within a short time they will spread like a bushfire. And once a bushfire has started, then it's difficult to extinguish. You Australians, uh, you know better than anybody else in the world. So, these five hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt, can become a very big stumbling block on our way to liberation, if we do not uh, notice them, if we just leave them. And so, therefore, whenever they arise, we should observe them, we should note them, so that they will not become an obstacle uh, for our liberation. As I said before, these hindrances are but mental states that can arise uh, together with consciousness, and they arise when the necessary causes and conditions are present. These hindrances, these mental states, are not something permanent or everlasting. They come and go as everything else does. So, we can overcome them uh, with the simple method of observing and noting them. It's a simple way to deal with it, not very difficult, and when applied properly, it's very effective. Maybe it's not so easy at the beginning of the practice, because mindfulness is not yet very sharp, and concentration is not yet deep enough. But as practice uh, deepens, then it will become easier to deal with these hindrances. You know, then it uh, a strong and sharp mindfulness and a fairly concentrated mind uh, will notice the hindrances fairly quickly when they arise. And so notice, uh, noticing it, being able to observe it, to note it, and careful, mindful observing uh, leaves no room for these uh, hindrances to persist. Then uh, strong mindfulness uh, has the power to overwhelm them. When we are still in the beginning stage, then we have to be careful of another thing. And this is our tendency to judge these hindrances. As they are called hindrances, then it's something we do not want. We judge them as bad, as unwanted. And so these judgments are actually just another hindrance. And these judgments need to be treated in the same way as the hindrances. Just acknowledge your judging mind without uh, 
leaving it run freely because otherwise it uh, will become very strong. So if one is able to deal with these hindrances uh, with mindfulness, with awareness, then actually these hindrances can become fertilizer for our uh, insights to grow. For example, cow shit is really smelly and looks rather disgusting, but it's a very valuable fertilizer for the farmers. And so for vipassana meditators, the hindrances can be used as fertilizer on the spiritual path by observing them, by noting them, we can gain deep and profound understanding uh, of their nature and that will help us on our spiritual path. As I said, when we pay attention to any of these hindrances, then we see them that they are not permanent entities, but that they are arising, staying a little bit, and disappearing again. There is none of these hindrances which will stay forever. So it's a continuous process of arising and disappearance, and Later on, when our practice uh, deepens, we can actually see that when the hindrances, when you observe the hindrances, that there are actually many moments of mind or moments of consciousness just very quickly arising and disappearing one after the other in very quick succession. It is said that in the blink of an eye, it's actually billions of moments of consciousness that arise and disappear. So this is very, very fast. <laughs> and in the Abhidhamma, it is said that physical processes arise and disappear a bit slower than the mental processes. So the ratio is that uh, for one physical process or in the, the time it takes for one physical process to arise and disappear in that uh, moment 17 minds, uh, moments of minds arise and disappear so the arising, arising and disappearance of mental phenomena is seven ta 17 times faster than uh, arising and disappearance of physical phenomena. So, coming to more clearly see the impermanent, impermanent nature uh, of phenomena means to understand the characteristic of anicca, impermanence. And so because all phenomena are fleeting by nature, they cannot be relied upon and they cannot be 
a reliable source of happiness. And so this is the unreliable or unsatisfactory nature of things. That's the second of the general characteristics, dukkha. And lastly, we cannot really control these processes. They happen on their own accord, based on causes and conditions. And so to understand that means to see the non-self nature of phenomena, the impersonal nature of phenomena. So, anatta. So, these three channel characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta are present or can be seen in all of our mental and physical uh, processes. That's why they're called the general characteristics. And so they actually can be experienced or seen in each of our experience. And even if our experience is one of the hindrances, then we do not feel, we do not need to feel uh, sad or uh, frustrated because if we know this hindrance with the proper attitude, then we can turn the enemy into a friend because we can come to see the true nature of this uh, mental state, of this hindrance. And so come to see that, for example, sloth and torpor is impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it's an impersonal process. Or we come to see that a restless mind is also impermanent. It's uh, unsatisfactory and it's not ours. We cannot uh, really control it. It's uh, anatta. So by observing these hindrances, we come to see for what they really are. We come, to see that we come to see them in their true nature. And so, seeing them as they really are, we start to become detached from them. And with this detachment, when they uh, still do arise, then our minds are no longer uh, caught by this hindrance, but then the mind will be able to just see it for what it is, a hindrance, a sleep, sleepy mind, or restlessness arising in the mind, and so be able to uh, be mindfully aware of it. So with this, we have dealt with these five hindrances May all of you be able to recognize the hindrances as hindrances, deal with them in a proper way, and finally be able to transcend them completely. May all attain unsurpassed happiness and peace. Okay.